0: We'll be continuing our series through the book of Mark in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 27. Picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It should be on the screens behind me if you don't have it. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, "'Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's.' And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.' There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring.' And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. It's been said that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. But as we live, that doesn't really feel to be true, right? In my experience, there are many more things that are certain than merely those two things, death and taxes. It is absolutely certain that the instant you think the Arkansas Razorbacks may have a chance to win the national title, they will let you down right in that moment. That's certain. It's absolutely certain that if you have more than one special order at McDonald's, they're not getting it right. It's absolutely certain that if you have been invited to an outdoor wedding... That day is going to be the hottest day of the entire summer. That's certain. Luckily, in our text today, we see that God is God. He is the Lord over all things, both things which are certain and uncertain, but particularly in this text, death and taxes. We see that he is God over the state and God over the afterlife. In the first interaction, that first story that we get in our text today, we see that Jesus is God over the state. To better understand what's happening in both of our conflicts that we see today between Jesus and these different groups, it's helpful to notice some of the details in these stories before we can actually get into the the deeper meaning of what's actually happening here. First of all, let's look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The they here in this verse who are sending these other groups to him are the the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, who we talked about last week, who Jesus was interacting with. He was rebuking them last week, and after they left, they sent to him these other groups to try to trap him in his talk. And they sent to Jesus these groups specifically because in any other circumstances, Pharisees and Herodians don't really get along. They don't have a lot in common, unless they have a common enemy who, in this case today, is Jesus. The Pharisees we've encountered a few times throughout the book of Mark, and they are very hardcore in everything they do. They are zealots for the letter of the Old Testament law. Their goal was not only to keep the law, but to add to it. They added traditions, commandments above and outside the Old Testament law, and then they held everyone to that perfect standard, even the things they had added even though they weren't able to keep that standard themselves. And connected to all of this line of thinking is the belief underlying it all that Jews absolutely are not Romans. They don't do what Romans do. So the idea of paying taxes to them is anathema. They would never think, yes, me as a Jew living under Roman rule, what I should be doing is paying taxes. Among the people hoping for an uprising and a return to prominence by the nation of Israel, the nation state of those people, when the Messiah came, the Pharisees would have been toward the top of that list. They would have thought the Messiah comes to overthrow the Romans and to restore the nation of Israel. They were radically Jewish So submitting to whatever laws, whatever standards the Romans placed on them would have been abhorrent to them. And perhaps chief among their grievances were the taxes that they were supposed to be paying to Caesar. If they were around in this day today, they would be people with a 93 white Ford Bronco with two flags sticking out the back that say, don't tread on me. They'd be posting all the time on Facebook about how taxation is theft. How dare they take our money? Their idea was, no, the, the Roman government is corrupt, it's evil, and we're somehow supposed to pay for everything they do? They would never think that paying taxes to Caesar is what they're supposed to be doing. That's the Pharisees. But the other group that came to Jesus to trap him in his talk are the Herodians. They're on the opposite side of the spectrum from the Pharisees. Even their name shows what, what, what they think about the, the nation of Rome. They're Herodians. Herod was the governor that was set up by the Romans to rule over the Jews. So by their name, they're like, Herod, he's pretty cool. I like him. I like these Romans. I like their rule. They are fans of the the Herodian dynasty that was set up by the Roman Caesar over this area, which used to be the kingdom of Israel. So if you're a Herodian, you've got no problem with Roman rule. In fact, you kind of like it. You kind of prefer it. Paying taxes to Caesar would just make sense to you. He's on our side. He's doing good things. We should be giving him his money. In fact, we should be giving him even more money. Submitting to the state, to the government, that was first and foremost in their mind at almost every available possible, possible opportunity. So the idea of paying taxes just came natural to them. They said, We're citizens under his rule. Of course we pay taxes. If they were around today, the the Pharisees would be calling them sheeple. They'd have an unflinching devotion to the ruling authority of the state. They would think the government, the executive officers of the government, the police officers of the government, everything that they do is absolutely correct in every instance. They'd have an unflinching devotion to who they are and what they say they are doing for the people. Neither of these groups map perfectly onto to today, but we still really encounter groups that have some of these same ideas. So these two groups, who absolutely don't agree with each other, come to Jesus together to ask him a question. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Notice how they prefaced the question before they got there. They said, teacher, you who only says that, which, which is true. You who wouldn't dare change your opinion depending on who you were talking to. You who would never possibly tell a lie. What do you think about this? It's like the, the mother when she comes home and there's a broken vase and she goes to the kid that she knows didn't do it and says, now you love your mother. You would never lie to your mother, would you? Who broke my face? They're setting him up. There's no way for him to get out of this. He has to give them an answer, and he has to give them an answer that he believes to be true because they're both looking for something specific in this instance. They're both looking for a specific answer that's going to make some kind of people angry, and they set it up as a binary question. They said, you've got two options here. Either we pay taxes to Caesar or we don't. What do you think, Jesus? And he's backed into a corner. If he says yes, that's not what the Pharisees or probably the crowd around him who are worshiping in the temple, that's not what they want to hear. They don't want to hear that paying taxes to Caesar is okay. Isn't this Jesus guy supposed to be the Messiah? Isn't he supposed to overthrow the Romans? Isn't he supposed to tell us that they no longer have any rule over us? Why would he ever tell us to be paying taxes to them? So if he says yes, the Pharisees and the crowds are very upset with him. They may even turn on him. But on the other side, if he says no, he has different problems on his hands. He says no, the Herodians who think paying taxes to Caesar is a good thing, they're not going to like it. Even worse than that, the Romans aren't going to like that. He starts going to the temple in the capital of the old kingdom and saying, don't pay taxes, let's overthrow the government. Guess what? The government doesn't like that very much. So the Romans would have had a problem with him. The Romans would have had the opportunity to even kill him in this instance. So his options aren't looking too great. He can't lie. He'll lose all credibility. He's also, you know, God. Lying isn't really an option for him. He can't say yes, the Pharisees will be angry. He can't say no, the Herodians will be angry. So what's a God to do in this instance? Well, first of all, he recognizes what's happening here. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He knows you guys don't care about my answer. You're not listening one way or the other. You're just looking for some group to be angry with me. They were sent to him specifically to trap him. He knows this is just a test. So he basically, in his answer, says, all right, bring me a quarter. Bring me some money. A denarius at that time was a Roman coin, which would have been used to pay the Roman tax. What my Bible says in the the footnote is that it's roughly a day's wage for a laborer. But when I read through my commentaries this week, they said it was roughly 18 cents, which doesn't sound like a day's wage to me. Uh, My one takeaway from that is I don't really want to work for those commentators who thought that 18 cents and a day's wage are roughly the same thing. But he said, basically, bring me a quarter. Bring me a penny. And when they bring it to him, which they already have on him, he makes his point with that quarter. Verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Just like our money, a denarius at that point in time would have had a picture of the ruler on it. It was a picture of Caesar, a picture of his likeness. And it had an inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. It was identifying Caesar and reminding the reader whose coin this is. This is Caesar's coin. It's his money. Not only that, it's saying that Caesar is divine in some sense, that he is owed some kind of worship. Caesar made it. It belongs to him. So when he asks for it back from you, you better be lucky that he's letting you keep the rest of it. Because all the money is his. His picture's on all of it. So then Jesus sums up his position, which lets us know that he is God over the state. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were marveling because he worked his way out of their riddle. They backed him into a corner, and somehow he found his way out. They asked him a yes or no question, which he answered with a question, which was eventually leading both groups to a place where neither were really that happy, but also neither really had a complaint to make. He Kobayashi maru the no-win scenario. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. To the zealot, to the Pharisee, when they hear that, they hear submission. In that one phrase, he lays down a principle for how to live your life as a Christian under the state In the world, as well as how to properly acknowledge God as the God over all of the state. The zealous Pharisee hearing this thinks submission. They think, okay, paying taxes is acceptable according to him. Now, they wouldn't have accepted that because they're Pharisees. They didn't like Jesus very much. But they hear that and they think, okay, Jesus is saying paying taxes is acceptable. You're using a denarius. It has his name, his picture on it. You can't be that upset when he asks for it back. We have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I think for the Christian, what that tells us is we should have almost a reflexive submission to the governing authorities. That should be our default. We should be the best of citizens. We should submit in every area that we can to the governing authorities, doing all that we can to obey them as they have been given to us. We get that not only from this text, but also from Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, which is, I know, kind of a lengthy quotation, but it should be on the screen behind me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In general, we should do all we can to submit to the right and good rule of the state of the government over our lives. God, who has all authority and uses it for our good, has given some authority over to the state for the state to wield also for our good. In general, when we submit to the government, when we submit to their rule, we are submitting to God's rule. However, we not only render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we also render to God that which is God's. So just as the zealous Pharisee hears that and hears submission, the nationalist Herodian, he hears religion. He hears true religion, the rule of submitting to the government's rule and authority. That is a rule, but it's not an absolute rule. Christ's statement is also making that clear. The nationalist hears true religion when they hear what he says. While we do render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, we also render to God that which is God's. And what isn't God's? It's all his. All the universe belongs to him. Caesar may have made the coins, but God made what the coins are made of. God made everything. There was nothing, and then God spoke, and it was. So by the same rule through which Caesar gets to own the coins, God gets to own the universe. All of it belongs to him, all power, all authority. He gives life and breath to everything. Even in Romans 13, whatever authority the government has, that's authority from God. It's derived authority. It's authority that's been gifted over to them. So the state doesn't get to rule or to govern absolutely because it can only rule and reign within the sovereignty of God. And particularly for us as Christians, there's a clear connection being made here when Jesus talks about image and likeness, inscription on the coin. Remember in Genesis, when God made humankind, how did he make us? In his image, after his likeness. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So if Jesus were to play the same scene out with a human being but not with a coin, when they brought the human being to him and he asked, Whose likeness is on this? Whose image is here? What does the inscription say? The answer would be, that's God's image. That's God's likeness. That's God's inscription. Caesar owns the coins, but God owns the man. So we, our whole being, our very lives, should be rendered to God. Because we are among the things that are his. While a Pharisee errs in rendering nothing to Caesar, the Herodian errs in rendering everything to Caesar and nothing to God. But God is God over all, even the state, even the government. And because he is God over the state, we should render to Caesar, to the state, that which belongs to the state. We're good citizens. We pay our taxes. We obey the laws. We do our best to do what they have asked us to do, even when it's inconvenient for us, even when we may not want to do it or think that it's wrong for them to ask us to do this thing. We render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I think that should be our default position as we live our lives in this world. We submit until we can no longer, in good Christian conscience, be able to submit. And that time may come. When we cannot render to Caesar and God at the same time, we obviously prioritize rendering to God that which is God's because Caesar's rule is only given to him by God. Throughout human history, various governments have asked us Christians to do that which as Christians we cannot do. They have asked us to do things which clearly violate scripture, clearly violate the rule of the God of the universe. And when that day comes, we have to be prepared to render unto God that which is God's. Ourselves, Our very lives. Even if that means we have to defy Caesar to do so. Because God is God over the state. But he is also God over death. That's what the second story shows us here in our text today. He is God even over death. Again, let's look at the details of the story so that we can understand its meaning. Verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying... So this time, the text actually tells us the background. Before, we had to know who the Pharisees and the Herodians were. This one tells us what's important to know about the Sadducees. The Sadducees are questioning him, and their defining belief for the purposes of this story in this text is they say there is no resurrection. They only believe the first five books of the Bible are actually Scripture. They say that's it. That's all God gave us, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament law. That's God's word. Everything else doesn't apply. So that means whereas Jews at that time and us today as Christians would say that all of God's people who die will one day come back to life, one day enjoy life with him in the heavens. The Sadducees' answer to that question is no. This is it. This is all there is. You die and you're done. You pass into nothing. There are no future rewards, no future punishments. There are no angels, no demons, no afterlife. The resurrection was simply made up by people who wanted it to be true. That's the belief of the Sadducees. So guess what their question deals with as they come to Jesus again to test him? Verses 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. They think that the resurrection is a ridiculous idea. So they come up with a scenario based on the law of the Old Testament and the messiness of human life, which is supposed to highlight the ridiculousness of the belief in the resurrection, it's supposed to highlight how crazy it would be for the resurrection to be true. They say, well, "What do you mean? If there's a resurrection. If the resurrection's true, what happens in this scenario? What does that look like? Jesus, this woman in this text followed the Old Testament law exactly. So did all the brothers, which in this case meant that she was one bride for seven brothers." So they all come back. Whose wife is she, Jesus? Answer me this. In the resurrection, which you can claim to believe in, when they rise, Jesus, whose wife is she? They're hoping to trip him up and to draw attention to some of the obvious complications that a belief in the resurrection might be able to cause. But to those who do not believe, he answers them with the scriptures. They don't believe in the resurrection, and yet he gives them the scriptures anyway. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's saying your issue isn't just unbelief. Your issue is unbelief and a lack of knowledge in what you claim to believe. He completely skips telling them they're wrong. He doesn't say, hey, there is a resurrection. He assumes there is a resurrection. He says, not only are you wrong, but I'm telling you why you are wrong. Because they don't know the scriptures. If only they had actually known. If they had actually understood his word. They might have been able to avoid this error that they had in this text. And that principle. The idea that those who do not believe disbelieve. Because they don't know the word of God. That's a huge reason why we do everything we do here at Pleasant Grove. We are a people of the book. We're people of the Bible. Everything we do, we aim to have it centered around God's word as his revelation of himself to us. We start the service with a call to worship that's been taken from scriptural phrases. We sing songs which are true, which are based on the Bible, and most often even quote scripture in the lyrics. We pray as a people after the pattern that Jesus gave us in the Bible. We preach and proclaim the Bible week in and week out, going through the Bible, not through whatever I feel like telling you this week, but through whatever God has for you next in his text week in and week out. My goal, what I pray every week before I begin my sermon, is for God to get me out of the way and let you see him and his word more clearly. That through his word, he might give you his gospel that you might have life in his name. That's why we would do what we do. And when the service ends, we end it with a benediction, with the good words, which always come from the word of God, from the scriptures. We could do other things in our times together. Other things may be helpful. Other things may be more entertaining. Other things may be more enjoyable. But we do these things because we believe that the scriptures are the key to causing those who do not believe to believe and to equip those who do believe to believe even further, to walk even deeper in their faith. We do these things based on these words because God has decided to cause those who do not believe to come to faith by hearing, knowing, and believing in his gospel through his scriptures. So he answers those who don't believe with the scriptures But he also answers the dead with his power. Scriptures isn't all he gives them. He answers the unbelieving with scripture, but he answers the dead with his power, 24 and 25. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they're neither married nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, we've, we've got to clarify something here. When he says like angels in heaven, he doesn't mean that exactly doesn't mean that literally. When you die, you don't go to heaven and become an angel. But in this sense of neither marrying nor being given in marriage, that's how you are like the angels. Marriage doesn't exist in heaven. Angels do. Glorified human beings do. They're two different groups. The angels are a created group, a created being. We don't become angels in the same way we don't become dogs or cats. And in some sense, you would much rather be a human being than an angel because scripture tells us over and over that we know the things that angels long to look at. That in the new heavens and the new earth, the angels will in some sense be serving us even as they serve God. So no, we don't become angels. But this text tells us that the resurrection is a true and sure hope that we can have as God's people. Jesus is assuming the resurrection here. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Our belief in the future resurrection is founded in the goodness and power of God to be able to raise the dead. We not only know the scriptures, but through them, we are able to know his power. He has the power to raise the dead. And we know that because in the scriptures, it tells us about Jesus being risen from the dead, him being raised. When he comes to life, that is our sure hope and promise and securing of our future resurrection. We know that we will be raised because he has been raised. Not only did he raise himself, that's the very basis for our entire belief and hope, but he also, in some sense, has raised us already. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God saved us by grace through faith. He brought us to life. That's the gospel that we believe. When the dead approach him, he answers the dead with his power, which brings life to the dead. He also answers his people with his faithfulness. Verses 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Notice where he quotes from as he answers the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, who only hold to the first five books of the Old Testament as God's words. He says, in the book of Moses, in the very book that they believed in, that's the Torah. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He said, not only in the book of Moses, but in the passage about the bush. He said, look, right there in that passage. They didn't have verses and numbers to point back to, but he tells them exactly where to go to see the quote that he is giving them. If in Exodus 3, 6, in his quotation, and his explanation here that he gives from that text that they should agree with, that works on two different levels. The belief in the resurrection that they all held to was ultimately a belief in the faithfulness of God. If he's going to save his people as he claims he will, if he's going to do that for them as he's promised, it's going to take a resurrection to do that. If he's going to be faithful to his promise, the resurrection has to be real. Well, that phrase, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's a statement of God's faithfulness throughout the entire Old Testament. He's saying every time he says that, I am the God who made them these promises, and I will fulfill these promises in you, my people. Ultimately, through Christ, my son. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything I promised to him, I am still promising, even now, to you. He promised to Abraham to make him into a great nation. Therefore, his people are going to be a great nation. He re-upped those promises to Isaac and to Jacob. When they heard that phrase, they would have heard that he is a faithful God who keeps his promises to his people. That's what that phrase is supposed to tell them every time they hear it. But Jesus is also pointing out the present tense in that phrase. Saying, no, no, no. When God said that, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even as he was speaking to Moses, many years after all of them had already died. Well, if that was true, even then, that he already was presently the God of those men, though they were dead. He is still the God of those men now. And he is a God who is not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. So if he's the God of these men, then either he is the God of the dead who simply die and pass into nothing. Or there has to be a resurrection, which means that those guys are going to live again. That he is now, currently, the God of Abraham, just as he is the God of you right now. That same truth, that same promise, that same hope in a future resurrection was true when he said it to Moses. It was true when Jesus said it to the Sadducees, and it's true for us right now, today. He is still the God of Abraham. He is still the God of Isaac and Jacob. Just as they will be raised, which make him the God of the living, He will be, we will be raised. He is God even over death. And for his people who acknowledge him as God over death and taxes, God over the afterlife and the state, we can trust and hope in that coming resurrection. We know it's true because of Christ's work for us, that he not only died in our place, but also rose again to give us new life to give us a sure hope and a present promise of the future coming resurrection. But that is only true for us when we've repented and believed in his gospel. It's my prayer, it's my hope, that we will begin to acknowledge him as the God over everything, starting today if we haven't already. That we would submit to him in everything, starting today if we haven't already. That there's no part of our lives that we get to hold back and say, no, I'm rendering this to myself. I'll render to God the things that are God's. It's all his. Even as we live in a world where we do have to render some things to Caesar, even as we do that, we have to recognize that our ultimate goal, our ultimate aim is to render to God that which is God's. To know and trust that there is a coming resurrection, that even life itself is rendered back unto him. It's my prayer that we'll see that and know that today and every day. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to acknowledge you as God and be saved through your gospel. Thank you for sending your son to live the perfect life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserve to die, and to have a resurrection to give us the sure hope And a present promise of that resurrection for ourselves. Thank you for ruling not only the material things in this world, not only the money things in this world, but everything. Thank you for ruling even over the state, so that when living under the state becomes hard, we know that there is a God who rules over it. Thank you for calling us into your worship and giving us your scriptures, giving us your power, giving us your hope and promise that we might trust in your faithfulness to your people and live in that trust. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.